you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Ben, Jerry, Janet, Robin, and John, and help support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Tyler Winter. Tyler is a lifelong angler, conservationist, and environmental scientist. While working on Minnesota's large rivers, he noticed that people assume rivers are polluted and dominated by invasive species when the exact opposite is true. Minnesota's rivers are healthy and dominated by native fish. Historically, native suckers, freshwater drum, gar, and bowfin have been managed like invasive species. Tyler and his friends founded Native Fish for Tomorrow as a consumptive conservation group to challenge the rough fish paradigm. As anglers, they prove that native fish are a resource that should be managed for sustainability and their ecosystem services. And they hope to inspire others to angle for native fish so they can enjoy the resource too. All right, welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Hey, thank you for having me. I always like to start with people's backgrounds. So can you tell me where your interest in fish first began? You know, that is a, that's actually one of the ongoing mysteries. I come from a family of, of outdoors people um, and we grew up hunting, but I was like the black sheep of the family as an angler. And so I, I ended up teaching myself to fish. I always like to think that it was the, the curiosity of the unseen and the unknown, but I've wanted to catch fish since before I can remember. And the first place that I actually got, like, got to seriously practice fishing was a drainage ditch that was within biking distance of my grandma's house. And so I could go over to grandma's and bike over to the ditch and I would fish for carp because they were the biggest thing around. And one day I caught a bright silver fish that leapt out of this muddy, muddy water, right? And it's just shot out of the, out of the water, bright silver fish and leapt all over. And I got it to my hands and I did not know what it was. And I had already read everything I could about fish. And so the fact that there was a fish in this drainage ditch that I hadn't heard of really sparked this curiosity and inspired me to, to dig into and have like a lifelong quest to learn about all of these Minnesota fish. And it turns out the, that fish was a moon eye, which just so happens to be on the rough fish list. But I, I still credit that fish, the surprising way it jumped out of the water, for showing, proving to me there's always going to be mysteries. That's awesome. My first experience with fisheries was in these little intermittent prairie streams, and it was kind of a similar deal where it's super muddy water. You're like, nothing can live in here. Why are you even sampling this? And you pull it up, and there's just hundreds of minnows. And this. It's incredible what fish can live through and that we just don't even think of as good fish habitat. Right. And I, I always like to say that every fish in Minnesota and, you know, the upper Midwest as well, but every fish here has some amazing story or adaptation because they have to survive heat and freezing and, mm-hmm. you know, drought and floods. And so, you know, everything from a, a mud minnow or a Topeka shiner up to a, a sturgeon and you know, everything in between has some amazing fact or some interesting story about it. And uh, a lot of those get overlooked, which I I think is a shame. Yeah, for sure. And especially you saying moon eye, one of my favorite species to angle for, especially fly fishing, because I'm not very good, is gold eye, (laughs) like the lower Yellowstone River, because they're easier to catch. And they're also like really fun to catch. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they fight and they jump and they're fascinating. And 
then, of course, then they also have the amazing uh, fact that they are the Moon Eye and Goldar are the only hosts for the in- federally endangered spectacle case mussel. And so here in Minnesota, there is a population of spectacle case mussels on the St. Croix River. And the Moon Eye that hosts their larvae are actually unprotected in Minnesota. So you have a federally endangered mussel living on the gills of a fish that's completely unprotected, which doesn't make any sense. Right. I think that leads in well to my next question, which is, can you talk about what the rough fish paradigm is? Yeah. So the the rough fish paradigm, this idea that there are neat buckets, you know, that we can put fish in, right? And I like to think there's kind of three. You sport fish, rough fish, and minnows, <laughs> bait, right? And that has gotten put into law. But when you go back in time, you know, those those divisions didn't exist, right? There was a time when uh, we all fished for food. I was just reading an article today from Serious Eats that the origin of hush puppies is something called red horse bread. You know, there was a time when you just, you ate what you could catch. And there was no no need to have artificial divides about if it was rough or game. And I think it was around in the 1920s when water pollution was probably at an all-time high. Rivers, warm water rivers and urban rivers were incredibly polluted. And trains started taking people on vacation to pristine wilderness areas where the trains also took trout to stock. And at this point, fishing becomes a way uh, a way to uh, create identity and a class-divided activity. And so if you had the means, of course you would leave and go away because why would you fish in the river where the pollution goes? And so then the people who did that looked back home and went, who would even lower themselves to fish in this polluted place as if those people had a choice? And at that point, then somehow the warm water rivers that were polluted, the fish that could survive or did survive in them, or in many cases didn't, and the people who were still using them as a food resource all kind of got lumped together. And people started applying the same sort of logic to them of like, well, the river's dirty and the fish got to be dirty. And like, well, the people who would go there. And, you know, birds and hunting aren't used in this way, right? I've never heard a bird watcher say that the, they would never lower themselves to look at a crow. Right. But with fishing, people often really feel the need to tell you what kind of angler they are and how far they travel, even to this day, as if that's a mark of pride. And that's an extension, I believe, of this this cultural idea of these splitting. And unfortunately now today, this still continues on where I live next to the Mississippi. Actually, just before we recorded, I was just out fishing for an hour. And I also work doing water quality monitoring on the Mississippi River. And there happens to be a, a good number of bigmouth buffalo in this stretch of the river. And a, a, an angler, I saw him out there every week. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's they're always grass carp over there. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're not grass <laughs> carp at all. They're bigmouth buffalo. And he's like, what? What the buffalo is a mammal, and you know, right. and when you have to explain to people the fish you're trying to conserve is a fish, you're really not even on the conservation field yet. Whereas trout are already like they're doing end zone dances of of in the yeah. you know conservation world. And I've been f- nearly hit by people throwing yard debris into the Mississippi River while I was fishing because that's where they think trash goes, right? Even though they live right on the river, they think the river still where trash goes. They think the fish are trash and they certainly don't provide any access to me and my family when I want to go down there. And so this rough fish paradigm is really insidious. And when I started looking around at it, 
sure enough, it's actually enshrined in law. You know, there's a statute in Minnesota that defines fish, and we're one of the states that still even uses the archaic term rough fish. And it defines this group as being the common carp, the suckers, the buffalo, the bofin, and the moon eye. And so this group of fish has been managed, even though it's 26 native species, it's being managed like the one, the 27th invasive species. And that's the consequence of this rough fish paradigm that we still live with today. Right. Okay. So you're saying that it's enshrined in law as rough fish. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about in this episode is a new law that just passed the Minnesota legislature that is hopefully going to change that. Can you give an overview of this bill? Yes. So Minnesota has been having a lot of news around its native fish conservation. And that really started with, I believe, with Alec Lackman's research, where he set the freshwater teleost record with bigmouth buffalo at being 112 years old right here in Minnesota. And we started having media coverage about about bigmouth buffalo. And I even got to be on a fishing show for bigmouth buffalo. <laughs> and bigmouth buffalo and all these other fish then started to like, get some, some attention. And then there was also an incident where uh, some people speared over 80 gar using electronics through the ice in Minnesota, and that got the attention of some legislatures. And so we have the, the gar bill. Um, Minnesota now has a limit of, of 10 gar in possession. And then that led to the, you know, the next logical question was, well, why only gar? You know, because are really awesome. I mean, I like gar almost as much as I like buffalo, but the threats that buffalo are facing are just as great. And so then that led to what was called the no junk fish bill. And because the rough fish paradigm and the way fisheries is funded, as I'm sure all of your listeners are aware, and the sport fish restoration fund, and if a fish is a game fish, it can get funding for research and management. And if a fish is threatened, it can also get funding for research and management. And these native fish, like the buffalo and the bowfin and the gold eye, fall in this gap. And so there hasn't been funding in Minnesota for the research or the management. And the no junk fish bill now requires the Minnesota DNR to write a report recommending regulations and statute changes to separate the invasive and the native fish regulations to get rid of this rough fish category so that we're not stuck with one label that covers both mm-hmm. an invasive common carp and a hundred year old big mouth buffalo. And very importantly, the bill provides the funding to the DNR to do this. So it provides funding for the report writing and it provides funding for uh, a staff person, at least for the next several years, to actually be devoted to this topic. We also had over $35 million sent to hatchery improvements and so they were able to set aside like $143,000 a year for a salary and benefits for somebody to, to work on this. It's a huge opportunity, and it, it doesn't take a lot of funding to make that big impact because we don't need $35 million worth of hatcheries to like bring these fish from, back from the brink. We want to start treating them like a resource now so that we don't have to wait till they're on the threatened list to get the research funding. Right. If you're in fisheries at all, if you have any concept of fisheries history or whatever, we all know that history is full of examples of fish populations that were depleted and never came back the way they were supposed to. And we have to learn from that history now. The time to save a common species is while it's common. Yeah, that's really exciting to have legislation that's in a more proactive role than a reactive. And it's also... it 
puts the initiative still on the managers and the biologists and the scientists to make the recommendations. So the no junk fish bill is really is like a first step. And so we're looking at the long term, the next legislative session, we're going to have to actually, you know, is when we're going to have the reforms going. And these laws date back to uh, 1907 was the first time I could find a reference to rough fish in state statute. So for well over 100 years, we've been making regulations and making laws that are based around this arbitrary category. And it shows up in all sort of insidious ways. There's a can't remember if it's a law or an administrative rule, that uh, a bridge or a culvert cannot obstruct the passage of game fish in Minnesota. It can obstruct the passage of rough fish. And so when you're looking at barriers as, uh, you know, obviously a huge issue for all fish, native mm-hmm. fish and catastomids that are migrating long distances, right. And then you find out that we haven't had to design culverts or, or bridges or any sort of like, ah, well, if the stream only has native suckers in it, <laughs> then we don't actually have to allow them to pass. And uh, so it's like those sort of things, like that's an insidious sort of thing that then also really does convey this like devaluing of the native fish resources mm-hmm. and contributes to an overall cutting back habitat and so on and so forth. It's like, well, that was probably intended because of, you know, creating barriers for invasive species, but they just used this phrase rough fish. And so untangling all of this and untangling this phrase from Minnesota statutes, it's going to be a full-time job for somebody just to do that. And then once we have this out of the state statutes, we're really going to be able to make some progress towards actual conservation, I think. Yeah. So with the the position that it's funding, is that more on like the literature review side of things, to getting into the policy of where is rough fish here? Or is it someone like this actually going to have funding to go out and start like monitoring and managing some of these species? Well, the Minnesota DNR has a pretty robust monitoring program. The state doesn't necessarily do as many surveys on our large rivers as our 11,843 lakes. And so that's where a lot of the effort goes. We do do a lot of monitoring. We have a very extensive and well-sorted fish database. And so I think, I don't work for the Minnesota DNR, but I think this the, this person's mainly going to have you working on the rulemaking and regulatory side of things. I heard that the, the phrase rough fish comes up in Minnesota statutes or rules at least 70 times. And so just going through and figuring out what the correct replacement language for that is going to keep someone busy for a while. My role in this is as the conservationist and a science communicator as well. As a conservationist, as a stakeholder, I'm a founding member of the group Native Fish for Tomorrow and that just existing. And I was able to testify on behalf of this bill with DNR staff. So it was great to have their support, and then some formalized conservation stakeholders coming forward. I also want to call out, there was quite a coalition of Minnesota's conservation organizations that supported this, including the Minnesota Isaac Walton League, Minnesota Conservation Federation, Friends of Pool 2, and others. Awesome. Who is the uh, legislator that brought this bill to be? This bill was Representative Sidney Jordan, um, and then the 
first no junk fish bill was Representative Becker Finn. And so we, we have some great legislative support in Minnesota. And it, it seems that if you can get some stakeholders, some managers, and some representatives all on the same page, you can really get stuff done pretty quickly. Yeah, that's awesome. It was uh, pretty well received overall, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that everybody who harvests native fish or uses them for, you know, harvest them recreationally, we all know, you know, that this is a finite resource and that if we want to fish and make fish cakes and do all this for the future, that like we have to have fish to do it. And then one thing that I think is is fun is to talk to the non-anglers, right? And you show them a picture of a fish or you show them a fish and you say like, do you know why there are so many eagles here, right? And they're like, I hadn't really thought of it. Like, well, because they eat red horse, right? Mm-hmm. My favorite big mouth buffalo spot has a tree, a dead tree above it where eagles roost. And so I'll be sight fishing to to buffalo and an eagle will take off and all of my buffalo will spook at the same time. <laughs> and I have to wait for the buffalo to like mm-hmm. get calm again. And as much as I love science, I love reading published research and stuff like that. I also love the angling aspect and the naturalist aspect of it, where it's like, I don't actually need to do a lot of research to know that that eagle is trying to eat a buffalo, right? <laughs> like when it's sitting in the tree over over the school of buffalo. I was just out on the Mississippi a mile from my house fishing for, for red horse on a, a rock bar in the Mississippi, and an eagle was working back and forth over this rock bar. And so it's like, you know that these are things. And to tell people, these are the link in the food chain between your habitat and your water quality, you know, your invertebrates, we all, you know, uh, invertebrate IBIs, these are the link between that and the charismatic megafauna. Mm -hmm. And that link has been so underappreciated, right? But I catch so many red horse that have scars on their back, scales missing or whatever. And it's like, these fish are out there fulfilling that ecological niche. They're turning over rocks on the bottom. They're, you know, combating embedded sediments and, they should be out there in numbers doing all of these things and we should manage them and appreciate them. Even if you don't fish for them, if you like eagles and you like otters and you like freshwater mussels because you're a naturalist, then of course you should like the fish that support those things and support those ecosystem functions. This is going to be one of my favorite podcasts just because we get to talk about how cool suckers are. <laughs> Do you have a favorite sucker? Um, I always say the blue sucker because it was one of the ones that I caught when I was working for FWP and on the low Yellowstone and they're just, they're massive and they have really like gross knobbly lips and they're like, I think really charismatic in that they're like kind of goofy looking, but I also like shorthead red horse have like the most like brilliant red tails. So it's, it's hard. They're also cool. Shorthead red horse are always dear to my heart and they're my family's favorite. We are always competing to see who who gets the biggest shorthead red horse, but right now we are all tied at 21 inches exactly. Oh, nice. <laughs> I know. I know. So whoever catches a 21 and a quarter is going to be like king or queen of the shortheads right. in, our, in our family and have bragging rights. Well, along the lines of angling for these non-game species, I think it'd be great to talk a bit more about your nonprofit, Native Fish for Tomorrow. Can you talk about what inspired you all to create this organization and like the goals and mission of it? Yeah, Native Fish for Tomorrow sprang out of a group of friends who coalesced around roughfish.com. And we are all passionate anglers. And we looked at the success and the advocacy of so many other 
groups that were focused on game fish. And we really wanted to bring that sort of energy and that sort of, we call it consumptive conservation, right? Where we want to promote and share these fish by telling people you can go and get them. And maybe it's catch and lease, maybe it's catch and cook, but that these are actually an available resource, right? Things that are managed as a resource are managed for sustainability. And so saying, I... I go out and catch them and I make homemade fish sticks goes a long way to combating the devaluing of this resource. Mm -hmm. I often hear people say, well, you can't eat them. And then I say, am I going to die? Because I do. Or people will say, well, you know who does eat them? And I'm like, just stop now. (laughs) Something. (laughs) But those are the two things that I hear. And so like, if I say, hey, I go fish for these and I eat a few that forces people to reconsider their devaluing of them, to see them as a potential game fish and as a resource, especially before the, the walleye opener here in Minnesota. It's like, mm-hmm. well, what, are, what else are you going to do? Sunfish are so small. Of course, I'm going to go out and catch the, the sucker run. And we, we see a lot of people out there, you know, and the other thing is, too, is that walleye are king in Minnesota. And when they do creel surveys, of course, walleye are the most sought after. But I think that's because... They don't consider whatever bites to be a type of fish. Mm. If you tally up all the people who are fishing for whatever bites, they're probably more popular than walleye, but it's been hard to uh, coalesce stakeholders around whatever bites. Um, Native fish for tomorrow in the short term, our goal is actually to get some name recognition for these species. A lot of what we're doing education-wise and communication-wise is just telling people that fish are not a carp. As I alluded to earlier, when you people don't know that your fish exists, mm-hmm. it's hard to get interest in conservation. And so, you know, combating the phrase, I don't even want to say it, but but buffalo carp is like the worst thing that ever happened to buffalo. <laughs> In creating this, this you know, organized stakeholders and formalizing ourselves because we're all passionate about this, and I think it's important to bring passionate stakeholders into this. That if it's an academic thing, it's really easy f- to sort of kick the can down the road, you know. But then you run the risk of putting them on the threatened list before you're able mm-hmm. to do any work on them. And so we want to engage managers and legislators now to keep these fish as a, as a sustainable resource for people, for ourselves and for everyone else. Awesome. If anyone wants to contribute or support Native Fish for Tomorrow, is there a good way for them to do that? Visit our website. We are still in the process of ramping up. Luckily, existing has been really helpful for us and has uh, we've been able to, to interface and to testify and stuff. Knowing the audience for this podcast, I would say if anyone has any great research or projects that they would like to share with us, please send it on. You know, we obviously believe and I we love reading the science and that is a great conversation starter for people and all of the research that is being done as of recent. I think we're in a, a bit of a scientific rough fish renaissance right now um, with the great work from Alec Blackman and Dr. Ripple and uh, Solomon David. And now uh, so many uh, great ichthyologists are coming to Minnesota with an interest in native fish. It's a great time. It's a great time to be uh, working on this issue in Minnesota. It feels like everything's coming together for us. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Is there anything else you would like people to know about either the No Junk Fish Bill, Native Fish for Tomorrow, or just like Native Fish in general before we move on to our last questions? Man, there are so many things I want people to know about Native Fish in, <laughs> in general. <laughs> One thing that I think is an intra- is a, a struggle for us and communication-wise, and if anyone has can help with this, is the fact that we are trying to advocate for such a wide range of species all at the same time. Mm-hmm. I like to tell people that you should, you can harvest some shorthead red horse and smoke them, pickle them, um, make fish cakes, and then you identify a river red horse and let it go. Because there's this dichotomy there where we have some fish that are, you know, literally threatened or at least species in greatest conservation need across the range. The, the blue sucker comes to mind as a fish that's, you know, basically threatened across its entire range mm-hmm. or cl- close, uh, or the river red horse, which is a threatened species in Wisconsin and unprotected in Minnesota, even though it's one watershed that they live in, in both states. And so that's a challenge of communicating to the public that some of these fish are a healthy population that is a resource and that some of these fish are literally like already threatened and we can't harvest them. I still, I personally, uh, Native Fish for Tomorrow would like to see catch and release regulations for that. I often lament the fact that I can't take somebody river red horse fishing and show them a river red horse. It was a great privilege of mine. I got to do that for a fishing show once, but I had to get an endangered threatened species permit. Mm -hmm. That's not practical, right? And so if we can't show people these fish and share fish with people, they'll never see a river red horse. Right. Or they'll see it. And because they never saw one before, and maybe they weren't informed about it, they may think it's a carp. And then they may think that, once again, like, that the whole river is full of invasive species. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing I think that I, I would like maybe people could keep in mind is just the, the challenge of communicating on this conservation issue because it's such a diversity of fish that have different different threats, different statuses. But we're doing our best to to raise, you know, rising tide lit raises all boats. And I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast on all of our favorite sucker facts and <laughs> uh and another podcast of the the gold eye, um, hmm. which is another one that's threatened in Wisconsin and not protected in Minnesota. But we'll leave it there. Um, I have two follow-up questions now. First, what was the fishing show? If people want to go look that up and see it. Um, I've actually gotten to do uh, a couple. I got to do a fishing show, uh, Das Boat, where I appeared oh, yeah. with Alec Lackman. And we I got to fish for Big Mouth Buffalo, which was a, a thrill. And sort of still can't believe that. And then I was also <laughs> on a, a show. I was also with the Meat Eater Network. Um, it was called B-Side Fishing. And I got to take Joe Cermelli, who... Uh, has fished all over the world as a uh, contributor to Outdoor Life and Field and Stream and Meat Eater. And I got to take him uh, sucker fishing for River Red Horse. And we soaked worms on rivers uh, with this renowned angler. So Cool. And then my second question is, if there are people out there that would like to try eating suckers, but don't know what kind of recipes to start with, do you have any good resources for them to go look up? Yes, I highly recommend making fish cakes. Roughfish.com has a recipe section and you fillet them out, take the ribs off, just fillet them just like you would a walleye. You leave the Y bones in, run through a hand crank meat grinder. You can then make a fish ball, which is the like origin of like the hush puppy apparently, or a patty, 
like a salmon burger, or my family's favorite is homemade fish sticks. I run them through after I mix them with cracker crumbs and an egg and a little Old Bay seasoning. I run them through the sausage stuffing attachment to make a stick and roll them in panko. And they're so much better than the fish sticks from the cafeteria <laughs> that there's never, I always think I'll make enough to freeze the extras and there's never mm-hmm. any, there's never any left. If you can't get suckers, you can also do it with pike. You know, if you're like hard up and you just need like a really easy fish to catch, you can always do it with pike in the, you know, in the winter or something. Awesome. I'm really excited to try that. I have been trying to convince my family to (laughs) eat other fish (laughs) so much. So I need good recipes to go with to entice them. Yeah, it's a little I I do it for special occasions because like the meat grinder itself is a process or what, you know, like I hate cleaning the meat grinder. But we actually we made um, sucker balls for the DOS boat show because they always eat on that that show and i was like well i can feed you guys red horse so we'll catch a bunch of red horse and we, we made those up and the, these guys are like you could feed that to anybody like <laughs> like that could be a state fair food like mm-hmm. it's like yeah it's meaty it's crispy on the outside it's like man i'm gonna start grinding my walleyes because it's like this is just so <laughs> good it's just so good that way you know but i've also done fish tacos if you have the patience to debone a sucker the meat is very mild tasting uh we had a big get together this spring we had a, quite a bit of Quite a few red horse that actually all got donated to Alec Blackman, and we took the the bellies off that are boneless and fl- uh, f- just deep fry those, and then the top half of the fillets went uh, into into the fish cakes. Great, glad there's lots of options out there. <laughs> well, this brings us to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview, and to our final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests that come on the show. I actually think these are a little bit harder, but we'll, we'll see what you think. First one is, what is your favorite fish? Uh, I'm going to have to give two answers. So I think my favorite fish overall is the big mouth buffalo, because you can sit there, like you can sit with the water's clear, and you can sit there and you can watch them. And you, it is incredible as an angler to catch and release a fish that very likely will outlive you and your kids grant like and your grandkids might catch that mm-hmm. same fish that's kind of an inspiring thing for me but i'm also going to say that big mouth buffalo are sort of an ungrateful fish and they don't bite very well <laughs> <laughs> i may have told them that at some point when i was like do you know like so my favorite fish to fish for though is a river red horse they're still not necessarily easy but i love the places they live and i love seeing a really big sucker in the water that's 28 or 30 inches long and trying to delicately drop a nightcrawler or a piece of bait to it without it spooking because it you know if you splash too close of it to it it assumes it's an eagle and playing that sort of like cat and mouse with with a with a really big river red horse in a beautiful river are you usually I never know the right term for there's like fly fishing. And then I just think of like normal fishing or gear fishing. Maybe do you do both or like what's your usual tactic? I do a little bit of everything. One of the things I love about an all species angling is that it really forces you to be able to do anything. It's like sometimes a fly rod is the best for big mouth Buffalo. I use a Kairu rod, which is a Japanese trout fishing rod. Usually that traditionally uses bait. Mm-hmm. But yeah, most most of my fish come with a slip sinker rig and a spinning rod and and a, a worm. I find that if you combine finesse and bait, you uh, generally will outfish just about anything else. Awesome. All right. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Probably uh, 
filming the B-side fishing River Red Horse episode, although that was uh, a struggle, um, it felt pretty surreal and was uh, quite the privilege to, to be able to to do something like that. Some of the other things, I've gotten to do a lot of cool things for uh, in my conservation work and advocacy work. A lot of them feel like dumb luck, and that felt like something maybe I had earned. That's awesome. All right. The next one's what's your dream job location, but I think I'm going to change it to what is your dream uh, fishing location? My dream fishing location is a river somewhere in Minnesota. I'm not sure if I've found it yet, so I'm going to keep looking. Awesome. All right. If money is not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I would love to study freshwater fish migrations more. I think the I know as you're a fan of suckers too, uh, that is such a under understudied and uh, obviously important aspect of river ecology. We get hints at the importance of interoperous spawning migrations and nutrient transport and stuff. But when you see these fish migrating up tributaries in the spring, uh, red horse and stuff in, in Minnesota, you just have to marvel at that and wonder like, a, is that historically representative? Like, how do, do was it more? And then also, what is the effect of that? And how much, you know, we know that's such a big thing for salmon, but you're seeing these rivers fill up in the springtime. Mm-hmm. You're like, it has to be making an impact. And I would love to study that. I would also love to either study or have someone study that and tell me about it. <laughs> and it would really help me better understand when I was supposed to be fishing. Right. That's the... As an angling scientist, I carry a thermometer with me and, you know, making notes about like trying to match up uh, spawning run temperatures with uh, when I should be going. And if somebody could come up with a a way to forecast river temperatures into the future so I could plan my vacation time. (laughs) All right. Our last question is if there's one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? This might be the easiest question, actually. To fish close to home. If everyone would fish close to home, at least sometimes, then every backyard would have an advocate for it and would have a stakeholder. And that means that, you know, we would have more appreciation for all of our waters and all of our fish. There's nothing wrong with with traveling to destinations and, and to exotic locations and appreciating amazing fish that are far away. But if we don't also fish close to home and appreciate what's in our own backyard, we're going to miss stuff and we're going to overlook stuff. And so I strongly encourage every, every angler, every researcher, everybody who loves fish to remember, like find the water that's closest to your house and at least try fishing it once or occasionally. And then hopefully have a, a new appreciation for something that maybe was mundane or overlooked. And I can also tell you from personal experience, if you can find a fishing spot within an hour of your house, you can go fishing a lot more, mm-hmm. which is I get to fish with my with my kids three days a week because we fish the Mississippi River for suckers. Awesome. All right. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was so nice to nerd out about suckers and hear about the No Junk Fish Bill. If people want to find out more about you, uh, Native Fish for Tomorrow or anything like that, how should they get a hold of you to do that? Um, Native Fish for Tomorrow is a great website. Native Fish for Tomorrow, all spelled out. We are also on Instagram. Uh, that's Native Fish number four for tomorrow. I'm also on Instagram. That's a great way to get a hold of me. 
at buffalo underscore catcher. So under buffalo catcher and email me at Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, at nf4t.org with anything native fish related. I research or fish photos or questions. Perfect. I'll put all those links in the show notes. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter, and the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod, or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, fish close to home.